Well, good morning, church. I invite you to open up to Romans chapter 5 this morning as we rejoice in our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God. During the time of the American Revolutionary War, there was a pastor named Pastor Peter Miller. And Pastor Peter, he had a neighbor who really did not like him. In fact, this man violently opposed him and spoke some awful things about him. He slandered him throughout the town. He would publicly mock him. In fact, at at one time, when the man saw the pastor, he would sometimes even become physically aggressive with him. He would spit on him. He would push him and trip him. And on at least one occasion, he punched him in the face. It would be fair to describe this man as the pastor's enemy. He opposed him. He was hostile towards him. He was against him. Pastor Peter had an enemy, and things were not right between the two of them. The pastor and this man, they had a broken relationship that was in desperate need of reconciliation. And we've all had enemies at times, haven't we? Broken relationships that need to be reconciled. Maybe it was a a kid in school or just a, a kid growing up, right? For whatever reason, they just didn't like you and they would pick on you and bully you and and just make it their aim to make your life miserable as you were growing up. Maybe it's uh, been a family member or a close friend who did something so hurtful to you or, or vice versa that it has caused a break and a separation in the relationship. Maybe it's someone at work, a coworker who doesn't want to see you succeed at all and seems as if they spend much of their workday energy actively working against you and opposing you. I mean, we even live in a culture who actually encourages more enemies to be made and more and more relationships to be broken because businesses and organizations can profit or gain political power by encouraging us to see people more and more as our enemies and to break our relationships that we have with one another. But this morning, and really this entire weekend starting on Friday night, we are reminded that the biggest relational problem we had was that we in our sin had turned our backs on God and had become his enemy. And this is what we learned today in our passage in Romans. Today we learned that we were enemies of God. Which I know that that sounds like a a shock and a little off to most of us, even most of us that maybe grew up in church. Like, wait a minute, can this be right to say that we were enemies? I mean, most of us, we see ourselves as, uh, as starring as the main character in the movie of life. And we're the enemy? Like, that's, that's a little bit of a plot twist we did not see coming, right? We're the bad guy? Church in our sin... We were enemies of God. But we can rejoice this morning because our risen Savior has reconciled us 
to God. And listen, I'm telling you, if Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, can reconcile things between us and God, then he can reconcile things between even the worst of enemies here on earth. On Friday night, we covered Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, and this morning we're picking it up now in verse 9, and we'll go through verse 11. And as I preach, my prayer for us is that we would see and believe that we can rejoice in our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God. I'm trying to help you guys this morning. I gave you three R's, all right? So when you're with family or friends later today and they ask about what you talked about at church, all right, we can rejoice in our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God. And we're going to go through those those three pieces, those three R's in reverse order. But before we do, let's, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, we do come before you this morning and we ask, Lord, for your help as I preach and as we receive your word. Father, we come weak and needy to this task. And we ask for your strength and your power to work in us and through us. We long to be edified by your truth this morning. We long to rejoice in your resurrection this morning. And so help us, Lord. Attend with power the truth that is preached. May we be refreshed and renewed. May we be convicted and comforted. May dead hearts be resurrected to life and may complacent hearts be shaken from their slumber. Keep me in tune with you as I preach this morning. May your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, church, the biggest problem we had was not so much that we had some enemies out there. The biggest problem we had is that we were an enemy of God. We had all sinned, as we learned back in Romans 3, right? We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark that God has called us to. And we continually fall short of the glory of God that we were meant to enjoy and reflect in his world. We all had committed cosmic treason against the rightful king and creator of the universe. We had all claimed authority over what was God's, and therefore we became his enemies and we were storing up for ourselves the rightful and just wrath of God. Now remember what we've talked about, about God being wrathful. God being wrathful is not to be understood as him being this abusive, wrathful, earthly father who is controlled by his, his emotions, and you never know if today's going to be a good day or a bad day. That's not what God's wrath is like. The wrath of God is his settled opposition to and displeasure with 
and righteous anger against sin. It's his settled opposition to, displeasure with, and righteous anger against sin. And when we read of God's wrath in the Bible, we see that throughout the Bible it's spoken of as both a present and a future reality. We learned in Romans 1 that currently the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, and that wrath oftentimes look like, looks like God just simply turning us over to our sinful desires. But the Bible also speaks of a day of wrath that is coming in the future, which is what verse 9 here is referencing, that there is wrath that is being stored up against sin, and one day is going to be unleashed on all of God's enemies. And at first, this can be a difficult truth to accept about God, that he would be wrathful towards sin. I mean, I thought God was nice. I thought God was safe. But as C.S. Lewis described him, he is, he's not safe, but he is good. You see, even though we don't initially like the idea of the wrath of God, he would not be a good God if he was indifferent towards sin. We wouldn't want a God who just shrugged his shoulders towards sin and the evil in the world. We wouldn't want a God who didn't care about the horror and the atrocities that have happened all throughout history. We do long for God's justice in the world to be carried out. We all long for this. We all want justice. The only problem with wanting justice is when God shows us our sin. When he uncovers our evil thoughts and deeds. And when we discover the truth that before following him, we were in fact his enemies. But what did we celebrate Friday? As John Stott has so wondrously said, we'll have this quote up on the screen, he said on Friday, divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came to earth and took on flesh, was fully God and fully man, and he came and he put the love of God on display by how he lived and by how he died, by sacrificing himself on the cross and taking the wrath that was meant for us. You see, you and your sin, you needed saving. You needed to be reconciled to God. The penalty for sin is death and separation from God. You needed to be reconciled to God. And so listen, you have to understand this. Your greatest need was not necessarily to be saved from yourself or from Satan or from sin or from your low self-esteem or from your anxiety or your loneliness. Your greatest need wasn't to be saved from all the brokenness that sin has caused in your life and in your relationships. God can rescue and likely will save you from all those things, but ultimately, you needed to be saved by God from God. You needed to be saved from the wrath of God. You needed someone to reconcile the relationship between you and God, who is the source of life 
I mean, if you're cut off from God, you are cut off from life. And this is what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you. He took the wrath that was meant for you. He gives you his righteousness so that you might be justified by God, that you might be declared right by God, so that now you can also be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is describing a a state of resolution between two former enemies, right? Two sides who were opposed to one another now come together and are at peace. And through faith in Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. Which, what does that mean? Faith in Jesus, that means believing that he is God and the Savior of the world. And it means trusting in his work alone for your salvation. Through faith in Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. And oh, what a beautiful thing it is to be reconciled to God. But you might ask, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that Jesus took the wrath that was meant for me, you know, back, back then. I'm trusting that Jesus has made me right with God. I've been justified back then. But, but how do I really know that I'm going to be saved in the end? Like at the end of my life or at the end of time, I mean, yeah, I might come to grips that I've been reconciled here and now with God. But how do I know that that's going to last? And here's where we need to understand Paul's argument that he's making in verses 9 and 10 because this is a very logical argument. All right, so if you like logical arguments, these verses are for you. We're not not taking the God as a mystery argument on this one, all right? This is a logical argument. And look back at verses 9 and 10 with me. And you'll notice the words, much more, in both verses. That phrase, much more. You might even be thinking to yourself, there might be much more to these verses than I initially thought. Much more. You see, what Paul is doing with this much more argument is he's starting with the big, the hard, the dramatic thing that it was already accomplished, and then he's following it with its natural conclusion. Like if God already did this first thing, of course he's going to do what follows. So, so look back at verse 9. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Right? Declaring unrighteous people righteous, that was the, the hard part. Right? That if we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the coming future wrath. If he did the one thing, of course he's going to do the thing that follows. We see it again then in verse 10 as well. Look, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I had a friend in college who ended up being one of my closest friends. We even uh, were roommates one year. Uh, He was in my wedding. We sent each other Christmas cards and all that. We're still close. But the first time I met him was on a King's Island trip, and one of my first interactions with him was him asking to borrow money from me. 
which I mean, it's not a big deal, right? You know, sometimes you need a few extra bucks for food or something there or, or, or whatever. But get this, he, he asked me at King's Island, I don't know him at all. He comes up and he asked me at King, King's Island to borrow $40. And $40 to a college student especially is a lot of money. $40. It gets worse though. He asks to borrow $40, not for food or for gas for the ride home or something understandable and reasonable. He asks to borrow $40 so that he can get a caricature drawn of himself (laughs) at King's Island. You know, he sits and the artist, you know, draws, yeah. And I gave him the $40. And he never paid me back. But we still went on to be great friends. And I've let it go. I have. Uh, I'm not not counting or budgeting on that $40 this next month that I'm going to see it. I mean, sure, I might send him this sermon just to see, you know, some sermon critique from him. And if he happens to remember, then great. No, I've, I've really, I've let it go. And he would honestly, he would love that I'm talking about him. So he's okay. You don't feel bad for him. All right. But let's say, all right, now let's say, stick with me. I do have a point for sharing this. All right. But let's say later in our relationship, after we've become good friends, after we've become roommates, let's say then he needs to borrow $5 to buy dinner. Like he's hungry. He's out of money and he desperately needs a meal, based on what I did for him in the past, what do you think I will do for him in the future? Right? If I gave him $40 when we weren't even friends, how much more will I give him $5 now that we are roommates? And this is Paul's logical argument here. He's saying, if Jesus Christ stayed up on that cross until it was finished, until our debt was paid in full, while we were enemies, if he did that while we were enemies, how much more will he keep us till the end now that we are his friends? If God took you from being an object of wrath to an object of grace, how much more will he certainly take you from grace to glory? The, the difficult, unbelievable work was taking you from wrath to grace. If you've gone from wrath to grace, how much more will he certainly take you from grace to glory? It's a logical argument here. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We rejoice in our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God. We've been reconciled, but we've been reconciled to God by a risen Savior. And so let's talk about Jesus being our risen Savior and being saved by his life as we see here in our text in Romans. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he he showed us the love of God. And when Jesus walked out of the grave, he showed us he was who he said he was. 
the resurrection confirmed to the world that he truly was the son of God and the savior of the world. He was the long-awaited Messiah, the rescuer of the world, the one who ushered in a new creation and a kingdom that is already here, but not yet fully realized. When Jesus Christ walked out of the grave, it showed that the father was satisfied with the sacrifice that Jesus offered up. And when Jesus walked out of the grave, he secured for us new hearts and new lives and one day new resurrected bodies. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, which we'll have up on the screen, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. There's that new heart, new life, right? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection secured that we would be given new hearts and born again to new lives. Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, we don't just celebrate this morning that the resurrection was this one-time event. We celebrate that Christ's resurrection was the first of many to come. He was the first fruits. And we ourselves and all those we know who have been in Christ will one day be raised to new resurrected bodies. What hope we have this morning that those who maybe won't be at our tables today sharing a meal, that those who have passed on ahead of us and are now with the Lord that we can't celebrate this Easter with, what joy and what hope we have today to know that one day there will be a resurrection and they will be given new and glorious resurrected bodies. What joy this gives us today for all of those who physically have some aches and pains and ailments going on. These are not our permanent bodies. We will be resurrected one day, church. When Jesus walked out of the grave, he secured for us new hearts, new resurrected bodies, and new, new lives. He's secured for us a new relationship with God. You see, it's a glorious thing to rejoice in a risen Savior who has reconciled us to God because that means that he's a Savior who was not just trying to give us a second chance with God. No, he was giving us a resurrected and new relationship with God. To be reconciled to God by a risen Savior is not a second chance with God. That would not be good news. I mean, we, we did not do well with the first chance we had, right? You don't just want a second chance with God. Jesus did not go to the cross and rise from the dead to give you a, another shot at this. He went to the cross and rose from the dead to give you a new life, a new heart, a new relationship with him and new relationships with others. 
You have been reconciled to God, and reconciliation is not a second chance at a right relationship with Him. Reconciliation is bringing the t- together of you and God through our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you by faith are in Christ, then as long as He lives, you live in a reconciled relationship with God. And do you know why else it's so glorious to have a risen Savior? It's because right now, our risen Savior is doing something for us. Later in Romans, in Romans 8.34, we're going to learn and talk about this more. But we're going to learn in verse 34, Paul writes, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ right now is interceding for us and praying for us and is our advocate with the Father. If Christ died for you when you were an enemy, how much more will he intercede for you and keep you reconciled to God now as his friends? We rejoice in our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God. Now get this, if he's our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God, that means he can also help reconcile our relationships with one another as well. He can empower and strengthen, and his grace can be sufficient to reconcile things with our neighbors and with our enemies. But for a new resurrected relationship to happen, someone and something are going to have to die. Now, thanks be to God, Jesus was the someone who died and was raised. But your risen Savior is now going to call you to go reconcile with others, and he's going to call you to follow his example and die to yourself. And maybe for reconciliation to happen, some of your pride is going to have to die. Maybe your bitterness is going to have to die. Maybe your sense of entitlement or your self-righteousness, maybe that sense of moral superiority that feels so good to have, maybe that is going to have to die. Maybe that desire that is in you that cares more about proving yourself right and justifying yourself than actually loving others, maybe, maybe that's going to have to die. And maybe your desire to be comfortable is going to have to die. Maybe you're going to have to step into some uncomfortable conversations. And so let me ask you this morning, who might God be calling you to reconcile with this morning? And what in you is going to need to die? But take hope, church. He's not left you to do it on your own. Jesus is alive. He's a real person. And he's alive. And he's at the right hand of the Father. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he's interceding for you right now. We rejoice in our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God.
But is this reconciliation with God something that we have to work for? Is it something we have to earn? Is it something we have to muster up ourselves? Or is it something that must be received? Look back at Romans 5, verse 11. He writes, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Oh, you see, this is a reconciliation that we merely have to receive. Christ has done the work of reconciling us to God. All that is left for us is to receive by faith. Therefore, we have nothing to boast about, nothing to be prideful about for this reconciled relationship. It's all by God's grace through faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. And therefore, we do not rejoice in ourselves. We do not rejoice in our works or in our faith or in our church. No, look at who we ultimately rejoice in in verse 11. He says, we rejoice in God. And this is really one of the great marks and identifiers of the one who has been reconciled to God. They have joy in God. They enjoy the Lord. I mean, every church person knows they need to say that they love God, but do you enjoy Him? Is your joy in Him evident to others? This is how you know you've been reconciled to Him. You see, anyone can emotionally manipulate you into raising a hand or walking an aisle or being dunked underwater with promises that you will escape the wrath of God. Like, even if you don't believe that, you might as well just do it just to get some fire insurance just in case. But those of you who have actually been justified... Those who are going to actually be saved from the coming wrath of God, you have been reconciled to God, and as a result, that produces in you a joy in God. You delight in the Lord. Because a reconciled relationship should produce a joy in the relationship, right? When things aren't right between two people in a relationship, usually joy is, is not there, right? The relationship is not enjoyed to its full like it could be. When, when the boys on a very rare occasion disobey Britt and I, there is sin, right, that enters into that relationship and it temporarily disrupts the joy that we have in our relationship. And this is one of the reasons that for you who are parents, this is why we promptly discipline. We don't promptly discipline to save our own reputation or embarrassment, all right? That is not why we promptly discipline. We promptly discipline so that joy can be restored to the relationship. So that the relationship can be reconciled. So that we're not going around the whole day kind of keeping score on how we've wronged one another and just upset with one another and having something in between separating us. And this is why Britt and I, we try to, when we discipline our boys, we go talk to them about what they did wrong. We teach them what obedience should look like. But then after they are disciplined, we have to remind ourselves, I have to remind myself, like, okay, the relationship has been restored. We can go back to the joy of our relationship. We can go back to enjoying one another. 
right? If I walk away from discipline, still upset with them, still holding something against them the rest of the day, then reconciliation really hasn't occurred, or at least it's not been fully experienced. And that's why we have to remind our boys that Christ has taken the punishment. They have now received loving discipline. We have forgiven them. God has forgiven them. And now let us enter back into the joy of a reconciled relationship. A reconciled relationship should produce a joy in the relationship. And therefore, when we really believe and embrace what Christ has accomplished for us when he died, and what he accomplished for us when he rose, and what he accomplishes for us right now as he intercedes, then we will be enabled and empowered to enjoy a reconciled relationship with God, to delight in him, for him to be the joy of our lives, And listen, if rejoicing in God is something new for you, if that's a new concept, you need to find someone. There's plenty of people in this church. You need to find someone that it is evident that they enjoy God, and you need to ask them to disciple you. You need to ask them to spend time with you and to to help you enjoy God as well. Right? Don't be don't just be discipled by someone who likes to study the Bible, right? If if they study the if their study of the Bible has not produced joy in their hearts, they are studying it wrong. A believer who has been justified and reconciled to God is marked by a deep joy in God. Because they know that if Christ died for them while they were an enemy, much more will he be faithful to keep them and intercede for them and provide for them till the end. Well, Pastor Peter's enemy, he one day gets caught giving secrets to British troops and he's brought before General George Washington. You've maybe heard of him. That was, man, yeah, that was a joke. You can laugh, it's right. And the general found him guilty of treason and sentenced him to death. The pastor hears this news that his enemy has been sentenced to death and he sets out on foot to go meet with General George Washington and to plead for the man's life. He travels 60 miles on foot. Not an easy journey, suffering, affliction, 60 miles on foot. He gets to General Washington and he begs for the man's life to be saved. Washington, however, was not initially convinced and said something to the effect of, you know, I appreciate the, pa- your pa- the pastor's concerns, but, but listen, Pastor Peter, I don't think it would be right to pardon your friend. And the pastor said, friend? He's not my friend. <laughs> he, in fact, is my worst living enemy. And Washington, so surprised by this, says, you have walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy? Well, that puts this all in a different light. And Washington was so moved by this supernatural love for an enemy that he grants the pardon to the pastor. 
He signs it. He hands it to the pastor. The pastor then takes the pardon in hand, and he goes to the place that his neighbor was to be executed. And the traitor was standing up on the platform awaiting execution, and upon seeing the pastor, he said, Well, there's old Pastor Peter. He's come to have his revenge by watching me hang. And to his surprise, the pastor stepped out of the crowd with his pardon in hand. The officer reads the pardon. He frees the prisoner and points him to the pastor and says, Here is your deliverer. And Pastor Peter and his former enemy, now quickly made friends, walk home together and enjoy a new reconciled relationship with one another. Now, church, that kind of love, the ability to love an enemy, is a supernatural love. That is a love that only comes from God. And, oh, church, we were traitors. We were the traitors. We stood guilty of cosmic treason against God. In our weakness and in our sin, we had spit upon God's face, and the cross reminds us that we rightly stood on the platform awaiting our execution. But God, at just the right time, left the throne room of heaven and He traveled a road of suffering and affliction. He went to the cross. He went to the grave. But three days later, on Sunday morning, He victoriously rose with our pardon in hand. And see your Deliverer, church. And go with Him where He leads. Enjoying this new reconciled relationship with God that he has provided you. We rejoice in our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God. Have you received this reconciliation with God? If you have, are you enjoying and rejoicing in this reconciliation you have with God? What other relationships might need to be reconciled in your life this week or this month or this year? If Christ has reconciled you to God, can he not reconcile you to your enemies as well? Are you rejoicing in God today? Sure, you might say you love him, but do you enjoy him? Is he your greatest joy and the delight of your heart? Church, may we rejoice in our risen Savior who has reconciled us to God. Let's pray.